Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. Rest of you, please uh, take out your Bibles and open them to Psalm 140. If you don't have a Bible with you, <clears throat> there are paperback Bibles underneath the chairs in front of you, so you can grab one of those. Psalm 140 is found on page 301 in the paperback Bibles. Uh, today, <clears throat> we are continuing our sermon series on being human as part of the Advent season. Uh, during Advent, of course, we're looking forward to Christmas, and Christmas is the time where um, God takes on a human nature, becomes a man in the uh, form of Jesus of Nazareth. And so, in the heart of Christmas is this idea of God becoming human, which has great implications for what it is for you and me to be human. And so, that's kind of the emphasis of the sermon series. We will return to Mark in January, God willing, but um, considering this question of being human during Advent. Last week, we began this series looking at the question of the dignity of being human, and we learned from Psalm 8 that God has crowned every single human being with glory and honor. This is not something that, that we earn. It's not something we perform for. It's not something we declare about ourselves. It's something that God has declared about us as His image bearers. We're not the same as God, but we do have a unique dignity as those created in His image. Now today, um, <clears throat> as Pastor Brian alluded to in his prayer, we're going to explore the tragedy of being human. So we might say that last week's sermon on the dignity of, hum of being human um, <clears throat> was before the fall, and so this morning we're talking about human beings after the fall, after that time where our first parents rebelled against God in the garden. Since then, we retain the image of God, yes, but we're now sinners. We're a little bit like a broken mirror, you, you might say. God's image is still reflected in us, but we're broken. We, we've been corrupted. And one of the greatest tragedies of the fall is that sometimes human beings abuse one another. And in fact, sometimes people who are supposed to love each other are the ones who abuse each other the most. Now, we could explore an endless number of implications of the sinfulness of human beings, but the specific manifestation of the fall that we want to consider this morning is that of domestic abuse. Now, you might think, why in the world did you choose that particular topic to cover? And there are a few reasons. First of all, um, as we are considering what it is to be human and the dignity of being human, we also want to consider um, anything that is dehumanizing. And so we'll be getting into that during this sermon series. Uh, certainly, domestic abuse would qualify as something that is an offense against the dignity of humanity. So that's one reason why it fits into this um, sermon series. But the second reason why is because our denomination, the Presbyterian Church in America, PCA, has recently re released a study report on domestic abuse and sexual assault. 
You can find that online if you would like to read it. It's rather lengthy, but I would recommend it to you. But the session here, the elders here at New Life have been reading through that report over the last few months. And one of the recommendations of that report is that this issue be addressed in our churches, even from the pulpit. And so we are complying with that request today and hoping that by preaching on this topic this morning, it will send a message that this is a topic that we should not be afraid to talk about in the church. And so the third reason why I'm focusing on this particular topic of domestic abuse is that domestic abuse is more common than you might think. This PCA report tells us that at least 10 million men and women suffer from domestic abuse each day, that 137 women are killed each day by acts of family violence, and most stunning perhaps is the fact that according to Diane Landberg, there is no difference between the general population and the Christian population when it comes to domestic abuse. Talk about a tragedy. Well, the text we're going to be studying is Psalm 140. This is not a psalm that addresses domestic abuse specifically. In fact, that phrase, domestic abuse, doesn't even appear in the Bible. But Psalm 140 is a, a complaint. It's a, it's a lament about evil people who intend harm to other people. And so from this psalm, we can draw principles and implications that hopefully will give hope to those of you who perhaps are suffering abuse, and hopefully for the abuser, a godly sorrow that would lead to repentance. So, if you're able to stand, please do so. Let me read Psalm 140 to us. Psalm 140, Psalm of David. Deliver me, O Lord, from evil men. Preserve me from violent men who plan evil things in their heart and stir up wars continually. They make their tongue sharp as a serpent's, and under their lips is the venom of asps. You recognize that from the reading from Romans 3 earlier. Paul borrows this passage as he writes there in Romans 3. Guard me, O Lord, from the hands of the wicked. Preserve me from violent men who have planned to trip up my feet. The arrogant have hidden a trap for me, and with cords they have spread a net. Beside the way they have set snares for me. I say to the Lord, you are my God. Give ear to the voice of my pleas for mercy, O Lord. O Lord, my Lord, the strength of my salvation, you have covered my head in the day of battle. Grant not, O Lord, the desires of the wicked. Do not further their evil plot, or they will be exalted." As for the head of those who surround me, let the mischief of their lips overwhelm them. Let burning coals fall upon them. Let them be cast into fire, into miry pits, no more to rise. Let not the slanderer be established in the land. Let evil hunt down the violent man speedily. I know that the Lord will maintain the cause of the afflicted and will execute justice for the needy. Surely the righteous, the righteous shall give thanks to your name. The upright shall dwell in your presence. Holy Spirit, we ask for you to open our eyes and to let us behold wonderful things in your word today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You can be seated. 
So, three things to consider. First of all, let's consider identifying the abuser. Verses 1 through 5. The psalm here does not identify the person who is abusive in this situation. I sometimes wonder if... um, the Lord leaves some of these details open for us when we read the Scriptures, so there's kind of wider application. Uh, So the exact abuser or violent person here is not identified, but um, when it comes to domestic abuse, the the truth is that pretty much anyone can be an abuser. Often it's a person you would never expect, a person who appears to be nice and respectable, a person who might be a, a leader in the community, person who might be a leader in the church, a person who might be a pastor in the church. Uh, I don't say these things to get us to be overcome with suspicion about everybody around us, but we do not want to be naive about the effects of sin and how we can be often surprised at who turns out to be an abusive person. In fact, even wives can abuse husbands, and we don't want to overlook that fact, and I don't want to minimize that reality in this message, but because only about 2% of victims are actually men, I'm going to be referring mostly to the abuser as husband and the victim as wife in this sermon. But Let's not overlook that, yes, wives can abuse husbands as well. But we see here in the psalm that God takes this sin very seriously. There are very strong words that are used for the abusive person. According to verse 1, they are evil. They're violent. In verse 4, they're described as wicked. And again, violent. In verse 5, he's called arrogant. It's very common for abusers to have this kind of sense of entitlement, to think that they have certain rights that don't apply to other people. Everything revolves around the needs and wants and desires and preferences of the abuser. If the household were a solar system, the abuser would be the sun. They're arrogant, as the psalm declares. But a very common question to ask about this is how do we identify a case of true abuse? So, first of all, let me define domestic abuse using the definition given to us in the PCA report, and they describe it this way. Domestic abuse is a form of oppression in which one spouse controls and dominates the other through a pattern of coercive, controlling, and punishing behaviors. Now, it's important to recognize that because of the tragedy of the fall, actually all spouses mistreat each other over the course of any given marriage. We, we often sin against each other, but it's important to understand that not all such sins constitute abuse. All relational sins involve some kind of misuse, but not all sins in relationships are abuse. That They're both sin, they're both tragic, we might say, but there's a difference. Sins of abuse are not just acts of selfishness that we very easily fall into. Sins of abuse are not just losing one's temper in the heat of the moment or raising your voice at each other. Abuse instead is when one person uses his power, authority, or advantage to gain control over the other person to wear away at that person's ability to flourish in the world and live as a dignified image bearer 
of God. That's abuse. We could perhaps just think of it this way. Selfishness is me before you. And, and that, that is a sin, not to be excused. But abuse is me over you. A more serious relational sin. Abuse involves active intention. And actually not even intention to abuse because an abuser often does not see that he is abusive. This is one of the tragedies of sin, and that is that sin warps our perception of reality, prevents us from seeing things rightly, so the abuser often is unaware of his own abuse. He's got an explanation for everything. This doesn't excuse his sin, of course, but the darkness has blinded his eyes, as 1 John 2 tells us. So, the abuser might not tend to abuse, but he does intend to gain control, to get what he wants and to deny what the victim wants and what the victim needs to flourish in the world. So if you look back at the text here, look at verse 2. It says that the abuser plans evil things in the heart and stirs up wars continually. You see, this, this is not referring to isolated incidents of conflict, but something that's it's planned. It goes on continually. Verse 5, also, the abuser has hidden a trap for me, and with cords they have spread a net beside the way they have set snares for me. See, they're, they're planning this. It's premeditated. It's, it's intentional, not isolated incidents. According to the book, When Home Hurts, uh, which I'm relying on to some degree in this message, there are two distinguishing features of abuse. One, abuse involves some degree of forcefulness. It involves coercion, threat, pressure, manipulation. But it also involves persistence. That is that these forceful behaviors begin to establish themselves as patterns in the relationship. That's why the PCA definition speaks of a pattern of coercive, controlling, and punishing behaviors. Now, abortion, excuse me, abortion, abuse can take many forms. It can, uh, we can have emotional abuse, we can have spiritual abuse, economic abuse, sexual abuse, physical abuse. Of course, there's child abuse. We don't have time to unpack the dynamics of, of each of those. But interestingly, in this psalm, we see a mention of at least emotional and physical abuse. So, first of all, notice the emotional abuse mentioned in this psalm. Verse 3, the tongue of the abuser is sharp as a serpent's, and under their lips is the venom of asps. In other words, their speech is poisonous. They use their words to humiliate, to manipulate, to discourage, to frighten, to demean, to insult, to make threats, to make the victim feel like it's her fault, to use Scripture to belittle, to guilt, to demand submission. Emotional abuse through the use of words, it's an attack on the emotions, or we could say it's an attack on the soul. Remember last week we learned that a human being is a body and a soul united together. Emotional abuse is dehumanizing because it is aimed at the soul. So we shouldn't see abuse as just something that's physical. It can be emotional as well. 
but often emotional abuse will escalate into physical abuse. And so you can see this in verse 4. David says, guard me, O Lord, from the hands of the wicked. Lord, protect me, he's saying, from those who would lay hands on me to harm me. And so very often emotional abuse escalates into physical activities like hitting, punching, choking, kicking, pushing, slapping, strangling, throwing an object at the other person. This all constitutes physical abuse, and the Bible describes these kinds of actions as evil and wicked, and so they are. I don't know if there are people among us here this morning who are engaged in this kind of behavior. Uh, If it's true that abusers are often self-deceived, it's possible that some of you maybe are abusive and don't even know it, but if the Lord should open your eyes, I would say there's an opportunity for you today. There's an opportunity for you to take that sin to God, to confess it to Him, to acknowledge it, to make no excuses, to stop rationalizing it, to stop blaming somebody else. But take it to God, look to Jesus for forgiveness, and repent. The writer of the Hebrews says this, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts. So perhaps this morning is a turning point for you in your life. Here's something that we can't forget. Even the abuser is made in the image of God. He acts like a monster, yes, but he's not. He too is crowned with glory and honor. And this gives us the hope that he might be able to recognize his sin, take it to Jesus, be washed in his blood, repent of his abusive behavior, be reconciled to God, and perhaps be reconciled to his wife as well. So let's go on to the second point, identifying the abuser. But how about understanding the abused? Understanding the abused. One writer on domestic abuse said that when she was a child, she would ask her parents, what are the walls for in our house? And the parent responded, well, it's to keep the bad stuff out and the good stuff in. And the observation that was made was that for the abused person, that is totally reversed. It feels like walls keep the bad stuff in and the good stuff out. That is the experience of the abused person. Home becomes a place of terror and danger. Home hurts for the abused person. So, in the book says this, when a husband leads by using his capacities for belittling his wife, he harms her in particularly destructive ways, and God holds him to stricter account. What makes domestic violence a particularly cruel form of violence is that the home is supposed to be the place where personhood blossoms into its greatest potential. But when home hurts, the world suffers. So because domestic abuse is is so perverse that it's happening in in this place that's supposed to be a place of refuge and safety, so it makes it so perverse that that's the place of danger for the abused person. And because of that peculiar situation, the victim can suffer in many different ways, which is often described as a form of trauma. 
And so sometimes for the victim, there are physical manifestations like panic attacks and restless sleep, chronic pain, changes in appetite, digestive problems. Others shut down emotionally. They become fearful, refuse to look others in the eye, develop troubles with concentration and memory. It's also not unusual for the victim to develop a corrupted perception of the situation. She might begin to think that actually she's the one to blame for the violence because after all she said this or did that and that triggered the husband to abuse and so she blames herself. She thinks it's her fault. Or she may develop an identity as a victim that she sees as permanent or inescapable. She doesn't see any hope that things can ever be any different or she may deny that abuse is happening at all, and she starts making excuses for the husband and even defends him if people question what's going on. And in almost all cases, victims of abuse will wrestle with feelings of shame and low self-esteem, a sense of worthlessness and rejection. And the reason is because the one who is supposed to love her the most in this world is the one who has loved her the least. Another way to understand abuse is that it's a, it's a reverse of love because true love builds others up at cost to oneself. Abuse builds up the self at cost to others. And when a woman is under that kind of experience, a twisted perception of reality can begin to develop. True love, friends, is the essence of the gospel, right? Jesus emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He built others up at cost to himself. That's the model of love the Scriptures set for us. But having had such a poor model displayed before her in her home... It's understandable that the woman begins to develop a corrupted perception of her environment and the people around her and even of God himself. And so the victim often begins asking questions about God. God, if you're so powerful, why don't you stop this? Lord, if you're so loving and you're so good, why did you allow this to begin to begin with? And in fact, where are you anyway? Because I'm calling out to you and nothing changes. And so it's easy for the victim of abuse to feel forsaken and forgotten and to become cynical about the world and to wonder if God even notices or cares. But what I want to point out to you here in this psalm is that the psalmist, David, has not given up on God. So look at verse 6. It says, I say to the Lord, you are my God. You're still my God in the midst of this abuse. Give ear to the voice of my pleas for mercy, O Lord. O Lord, my Lord, the strength of my salvation, you have covered my head in the day of battle. That this psalmist is under threat in the midst of the threat of abuse, but his eyes are on the strength of his salvation, which is the Lord. And if you are one who has suffered or is suffering from abuse, do not give up on the strength of your salvation. But not only does the psalmist keep his eyes on 
his hope, but he also refuses to take revenge, but he leaves it to God. Look at verses 9 through 11. He says, as for the head of those who surround me, let the mischief of their lips overwhelm them. Let burning coals fall upon them. Let them be cast into fire, into miry pits, no more to rise. Let not the slanderer be established in the land. Let evil hunt down the violent man speedily. This is the psalmist wanting justice, just as all abused victims want justice. They want the wicked, they want the arrogant, they want the violent man to be punished, and rightfully so. But the psalmist here recognizes that this is not his responsibility. This is a plea to God to let burning coals fall upon the abuser, not an expression of his own intent to do that himself. Remember what Paul says in Romans 12, Behold, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Now, let me be clear. This does not mean that an abused person needs to remain in a dangerous situation. To refuse to take revenge is not the same as keeping yourself in harm's way. Sometimes an abused person will feel that coming forward and looking for relief or help in an abusive situation is somehow betraying her spouse or not being a good Christian wife. But understand, friends, that true love for a person does not allow a person to persist in sin. 1 Corinthians 13, it says, Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth, and abusers need to face the truth. It's an act of love. So the fact that the Scriptures are calling on you not to take revenge does not mean that you have to keep yourself in harm's way, that you have to keep yourself or your children in a place where you or they are under threat of harm or injury. If you feel like we at the church here can help you as you're hearing these things, I, I hope that you would come and talk to Pastor Brian or talk to, to me about this. But, you know, if you're not ready for that, that that's understandable. Let me just give you um, a couple of resources. National Domestic Violence Hotline there, the number that uh, you could call. We also have a local agency called A Better Way here in Muncie, and um, they, they are eager to help. If you're being abused, you don't have to remain in that situation. But if you have suffered abuse and you're weighed down by the feelings of shame and worthlessness that so often characterizes the victims of abuse, let me point you again to this psalm. The psalmist says, God is the strength of his salvation. God is the strength of your salvation still. You have been told a lot of lies about yourself. Listen to what God says about you not what your spouse has been saying about you. If you're not a Christian, I can still assure you this morning that you are crowned with glory and honor. You are made in the image of your Creator. You do have dignity and worth, and this dignity and worth is not dependent on what your spouse thinks or says about you, but only on what God says about you. 
But if you are a Christian, well, the news is even better because not only are you crowned with glory and honor, but you are righteous in God's sight through the righteousness of Christ. You've been adopted into His family by grace. You have been washed in the blood of the Lamb, and there is no abusive person on earth who can take that from you. So listen to what God says about you. Uh, There's a beautiful passage here in Zephaniah that I want to share with you. Here's what the Scripture says. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by His love. He will exult over you with loud singing. I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival so that you will no longer suffer reproach. Behold, at that time I will deal with all your oppressors. And I will save the lame and gather the outcast. And I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. So for the abused person, this is for you. So let's consider one other point. Trusting the God who hates all abuse. Perhaps the the hardest thing for an abused person to deal with is the feeling that her suffering is not noticed. She may have tried to tell others about it, and perhaps it was dismissed, and this can lead her to wonder if God is even paying attention, if God notices, if God sees, and the answer is yes, He does. God does see your suffering, and the psalmist here finds comfort in this. If you look at verses 12 and 13, the psalmist says, I know that the Lord will maintain the cause of the afflicted and will execute justice for the needy. Surely the righteous shall give thanks to your name. The upright shall dwell in your presence. The only way the psalmist can say this, that God will maintain his cause, is if he knows that God has seen everything that has occurred and can therefore weigh it all on the scales of divine justice. And so that's where the psalmist finds comfort. God will maintain my cause. God will execute justice for me. And the reason you can have confidence in God's justice is because we know from the Scriptures that God hates oppression. Oppression mentioned throughout the Scriptures repeatedly, always as something that God opposes and hates. So if you are the victim of abuse, I can tell you today that God has seen what has happened. Maybe others haven't, but God has, and not only that, but God hates what has happened to you. And he has a great heart for mercy for the oppressed. Psalm 9 says this, the Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. Those who know your name put their trust in you, for you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. What I want you to know here, friends, today is that whatever abuse is, and we can define it in all sorts of different ways, Whatever it is, God is the opposite. An abuser lies, God tells the truth. An abuser takes, God gives. An abuser is violent, God is gentle. An abuser hates, but God loves. And in fact, the gospel tells us that our Savior Jesus was no stranger to sorrow. Isaiah 53 says, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. 
He has a heart for those who are acquainted with grief. Jesus himself, he heard the mocking, abusive words of those soldiers before his crucifixion. Jesus felt the abusive hands laid upon him as they stripped him of his clothes and beat him on his head. And he knew the sorrow of feeling forsaken by God when he cried out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? If that's been your feeling, friends, you have a Savior who understands and who can come to you and aid you in your time of need. The good news, though, friends, is that Jesus has come through the other side victorious, resurrected from the dead, having defeated the powers of evil and wickedness. And so now he says to all of us, and particularly, friends, to those who have suffered abuse, in the world you have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for speaking truth to us. We thank you for the hope that your word gives us. Lord, for the abused among us, if they are here, Lord, may they find you to be a stronghold in times of trouble. Lord, turn their mourning into dancing, change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth as your word has promised. For the abusive person, if he or they are here today, Lord, open their eyes to their sin. Produce in them not a worldly grief, but a godly grief that leads to repentance. And for us as a congregation, Lord, make this a place of safety and refuge for the oppressed, that all would know, Lord, that you do not forsake those who seek you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.